as a brief synopsis and a small apology to um, begin, and then we were going to start our fall lesson. But as I was getting it ready, oh, that's important. Need That needs to go in there. Oh, that's important too. That needs to go in there. And then it used up all the words. And so today is actually a preamble to the fall lesson, saying some things that I think are important context setting for us as we go. And it begins with this. I love this community. Oftentimes it happens to me. I have a physiological response when I see people starting to come through the door. It's just this surge of affection that rises up inside of me. I love you people. And I love what we do together. I love the work that we do together on our souls. I love the rethinking of our religion that we do together. I love working the circle together when our hearts get knit together. I love the struggles and the triumphs that we share over long periods of time when we watch the arc of one another's lives. So when I go away, as I just did for a couple of weeks of vacation, I come back with always a renewed sense of gratitude. Now, Denise and I figured out it is really good for us to get away alone. We don't have to go to Maine to do that, we've determined. <laughs> you've seen one lighthouse, you've seen them all. <laughs> but when I do that, uh, I do come back with a renewed appreciation for the community. When I was young, like a lot of young people, I wanted to do something important with my life. And here we are, reimagining and rebuilding the torn institution of religion. And that is important. Aside from my family, our community is the biggest passion of my life. Now, that's a good thing, don't you think? It's a good thing to have a passionate minister. You should say, yeah, that's good. Go ahead, say it. That's good. <laughs> it is good until it's not good. <laughs> passion has a next-door neighbor. Passion has a frequent traveling companion, and that is urgency. So yes, I am passionate about our community, but I also have a sense of urgency about what we do together. That also can be a good thing, except when it's not. So I chose a career in religion. I could have gone with any of society's five major institutions. I could have gone into business, government, education, family, but I chose to go into religion. And I did that partly because of how I see the role of religion in the... Wait a minute. Don't... Is that the new baby? Oh, please come back for just a moment. All right, all right. <laughs> I haven't seen baby yet. <laughs> Tell me baby's name. Sophia. Sophia, Sophia. all right. So part of why I chose religion to be my career is how I had come to define the role of religion in society. And that definition of the role, that's what made the career so compelling to me, what made it seem so important. So it's this, when religious institutions are healthy and whole, they inform the conscience of the society. When religious institutions are healthy and whole, they provide a moral compass for the society, when religious institutions are healthy and whole, they shape the building blocks on which the society is built, with which the society is built. In other words, we shape people, and then people shape institutions. We shape people with virtue and with goodness and divine life, and then people from the religious institutions then populate and shape 
the other institutions. So religion forms the building blocks of a healthy business, healthy government, healthy education, healthy families. And when we are healthy, we get to shape the people who make the society. One of the, that's all the Hershey's Kisses that are left? There's three of them. All right, your side of the room got delayed, so here we go. <laughs> We have rethought a lot of things about our tradition. I'm not sure that. So, anyway, when we are doing that role in society, one of the tools in our, our, in our toolbox, one of the things that we are called to do is to provide for the society a healthy, meaning making story. A story that people can position themselves in. Because what our stories do is they give us predictive capacity. They give us imagination capacity. They help us think about how to live and what to do when we have an overarching or framing story. And when we have a healthy story, it helps us live better. It helps us make the world a better place. And that is religion's job, to hammer out a narrative that is big enough and inspiring enough and beautiful enough that when people live in or position themselves inside that story, we end up creating beautiful people and a beautiful world. So when religion is healthy, the society enjoys the benefit of its religious institutions. When religion is not healthy, society suffers the consequences. Now, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard the word conversion or uh, you heard the word salvation. And it's the description of an experience that we have in our religious life, in our spiritual life. It's an experience of awakening from something that we were sl slumbering to. It's an experience of seeing something that we had not seen. Now, all the different traditions have lots of different details around the experience, but if we strip out all those details, it's an experience of embracing a story. So a religious institution tells a meaning-making story, and then that story does what it's meant to do. It makes meaning for us. It resonates inside of us. It awakens us to possibilities and awakens us to an inner truth. And inside we say, that story, it is true. And it is true for me, and it is true for here and now in my life. And so the story inspires us and the story energizes us and it gets inside of us and begins to point us toward a life that we want to live. And then it begins to draw us toward other people who are living inside that same story. And so we become part of a community, sharing a story and sharing a journey. I can live this story with these people. And if the story is a healthy one, we start becoming better people better at work, better at home, better with family and school and in the world. And that process that I just described, it happens. It happened to me. I know it has happened for many of you. It's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. I'm listening to a book through Audible right now. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis. It's a book about psychology, and it summarizes a bunch of psychological research that's been over the last 30 years. And here's an interesting thing. Being part of a healthy religious institution, it makes you happy. 
being part of this healthy religious institution provides us with a meaning-making narrative, and it connects us to a community that are making meaning together. It makes us better people, and it makes our world a better place. Religious institutions like ours get to shape character. Religious institutions get to help us become a more authentic version of ourselves, our divine center, our filled-with-the-Spirit-of-God version of selves. They help us become better people, which in turn helps us make a better world. And so here I am, 19 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, that's a life worth living. That's a beautiful gift to be able to give to our society, a privilege to go to work every day, creating an institution that transforms people and society, that's a life worth living. So I finish up university, and then I take off for seminary. And then I started interning at religious institutions. And it didn't take long to realize that our religion is not healthy. Our institutions don't have a good meaning-making story. Our story isn't making us better people. Often it's making us worse people. We have lost our way. We'll find it away, find it again, that's what we do. But it was a great disappointment when I was in my early to mid-twenties to realize that during my lifetime, the work of religious institutions would be the work of stripping down an unhealthy way of being Christian, stripping down an unhealthy way of being church, and beginning the process of rebuilding a healthy way. We have to do that. Because if we don't do that, we will not be able to fulfill our role in society. We will not be able to give our gift to society. Now, that's some background. I haven't got to the urgency part, but get ready. Here comes the urgency part. <clears throat> that's the urgency part. As much as I love you, as much as I love my wife and my kids, I've got a special kind of love for these two grand boys. And here's the thing. Their lives are going to be affected by whether religion finds its rightful role in society or doesn't. I've said it before, history is pretty adamant. The darkness of our day will pass. Sorrow will last for a night, but joy will come in, a morning, in the morning. Yes, our social institutions are breaking down, but we will rebuild them. They will work again. It has happened again and again and again through history, and it will happen again. There's a certitude about that. But what is not certain is how painful the process will be or how long the process will it be. Will it take one generation or will it take six? Will we participate with the process or will we resist it? Will we devolve into factions that work against the healing arc of history or will we evolve into collaborations that work with that arc? These two boys I love more than life. And their lifetime is going to be determined by what religious institutions decide. And that gives me a sense of urgency. Because history also tells me that the future is hammered out in places that are just about the size and scope of NRCC downtown. 
It doesn't happen in the meta-institutions that are failing us because those institutions are too entrenched and too cumbersome and too unmanageable. But new ideas emerge in and new ways gain and gain traction in institutions like this. Now eventually the larger institutions adopt that, but change happens in the smaller contexts because we are nimble enough to be able to adapt to new thought and to new structures and to new frameworks. This is where history is prototyped, is in institutions like ours. And that gives me a sense of urgency. Will we participate in this process or will we resist it? Will we adopt the preset script that's going on for us out there in the world telling us how to think and how to act or will we break out of old patterns and work out new ones? Now you've heard me say several times, this is a rare historical moment. Not many generations live in between worlds. Not many generations live in between worldviews. The way the world has been is going away, and the way the world is going to be hasn't yet emerged. That's why our institutions aren't working anymore, because they're founded in the old way of being. And the new way of being is not yet clear enough, so we haven't yet been able to adapt new institutions that will work in this new setting. And that's the time in which we are born. The way the world will be has not yet emerged clearly on the horizon. In the beginning of the summer, I put up several books uh, that I thought if you're looking for a good summer read, these would be uh, good ones. And this is one of them. What is going on today? That was me making all those mistakes, by the way, on the PowerPoint. Yeah. There it is. So I put that book up and I said, here's a book to read over the summer. If you didn't read it, I'd encourage you to read it. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it right now. I was hoping not so much to get wrapped up in the details of the book, but to get a sense of how technology is poised to qualitatively change human life. Quantitative change means we've got a little bit, and then we've got a little bit more, and then we've got a little bit more, and a little bit more. Most change happens quantitatively. Qualitative change means we were talking about apples, but now we're talking about lawnmowers. It's a fundamental shift in the way things are. And that is about to happen to our world. Life has been one way for thousands of years. And soon, I don't know what soon means, but soon it will be a different way. The way that we are human is poised to change. The way that we make meaning is poised to change. The way that we define ourselves as humans is poised to change. The way that we feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and house ourselves and move ourselves, the meaning of money, the meaning of making a living, life's most fundamental tenets are about to change, if not in our lifetimes, our kids, or our grandkids. There's good reason why Elon Musk is so freaked out about artificial intelligence. It's a thing that will fundamentally change the way that we are human. Now, there are a few technological bottlenecks that are holding back this seismic shift, but when those bottlenecks are broken through, life will be fundamentally altered forever. So here we are, born into the moment that we are born into. 
social institutions being stripped down because our worldview is going through a shift. Not yet rebuilt, we're in that in-between stage. Ancient foundations of human meaning-making are about to be upended. Whatever the future is, we are facing a very wild ride. Now, we've navigated, we humans, have navigated wild rides before. We navigated the shift from hunting and gathering into agricultural uh, living. We navigated the shift from agricultural living into industrial living. There was a great deal of dislocation when that happened, a great deal of angst and concern when that happened, but we survived it and we will survive this one again. But it will be a wild ride and it will be characterized by big change. And big change brings about big fear. And frightened people often act as though there is no social conscience. Frightened people often react as if, as if there is no moral compass. Fear makes us reactionary. Fear makes us insular and selfish, often brutal. But fear doesn't always do that. Sometimes fear motivates us, motivates us to move forward, bringing our best selves to the challenges before us. Sometimes fear motivates us to stand up and step up and do what we must do to work with the arc of history. So back to the urgency part. Here's the thing. Society needs a moral compass. A lot. Society needs a conscience. Society needs and will need healthy religious institutions. And... Religious institutions are not healthy yet. We Western Christians, we Western religious institutions, we're not ready for the future. You can just look around with a cursory glance and realize that we are not fulfilling our role in society. We are not offering a story that immerses people in the interior light our story is not big enough or beautiful enough or inspiring enough. We're not ready for the future. But it is nevertheless lumbering toward us relentlessly. It's not coming at us fast, but it is relentless. And it is unstoppable. And we're not ready. We're already a frightened society and the amount of change that we have undergone pales in comparison to the change that is yet before us. And we're already frightened. And we're already insular. And we're already reactionary. And we're already verging on brutal brutality. And there's a good chance that the change set before us is even greater than the change we have experienced. And how society goes will in no small part be determined by the health of our religious institutions. Institutions like ours. Will we face this seismic change with a conscience? With a moral compass? Will we have access to wisdom? Salt to preserve? Light to illuminate? To use Jesus' words. A lot of that depends on our religious institutions. So yeah, I have a sense of urgency. Here's the problem. Urgency is not always helpful because urgency can be so frenetic that we just numb out over time. 
And so what I do is I step back, I take a breath, and I meditate, and I say a small prayer on a regular basis, as fast as we can go and no faster, everything we can do and no more, as hard as we can go and not so hard that we succumb to exhaustion. So, my historical sense of moment, urgency, but also my observation that we have something pretty wonderful here. We have stumbled into a way to be Christian, a way to be a religious institution, a way to be church. And it really does awaken our better angels, and it really does help us transcend our demons. And so I try not to push too hard, but I try to push as hard as we can to move into the life that we need to be to fulfill this role in our society. So pushing, that's a gift <laughs> until it's a curse. NRCC is a challenging place to be. We do go at things. We go at dismantling our religious precepts. Cherished idea after cherished idea, and that is demanding, and that is emotionally costly, and it is difficult. Comfort after comfort that we picked up in our religious tradition, challenged and challenged and challenged. That's difficult. We go at conflict, not just the interpersonal kind that we are learning how to do with our self-awareness and self-disclosure and conflict resolution, but we go at this socio-political conflict that's going on. After the election, you heard me say, uh, would you please stay? Because at that time we were thinking, I can't go to Christian, I can't go to church with you, you voted the wrong way. But would you stay and together let's figure out how to do this thing Jesus asked us to do, to love across the divide. That's difficult. That is challenging. It pokes all of the things that come up inside of us. We have gone at and continue to go at the sin of racism in our nation's history and embedded in our own unconscious instincts. And we did that, spent a lot of energy on that, a lot of time on that, and now we're living that out in a whole bunch of things that we're doing. But we did that right after we had just encountered and gone at the polarizing political social divisions going on. And damn, Doug, what about a little rest? <laughs> and at the same time we're doing all that, on a parallel track over here, we're using the Enneagram and we're using self-awareness and self-disclosure and we're using the tools of conflict resolution to go at our own personal shadow sides because it is so much more comforting to just allow these coping strategies that we've developed so we don't have to look at that stuff down there. It's so much easier to just leave those intact. But we intentionally go at that stuff. We dig past it and we go down and we see that stuff and it is emotionally demanding to see that stuff and to see it in the context of a community and see it in the context of family. We go at our own shadow sides. We go at personal conflict. We intentionally seek out the dark places in our souls, not leaving them covered by strategies. And again, damn, Doug, how about a rest? Maybe a comforting lesson or two would not kill us. <laughs> joy. Doug, it's in the Bible. How about some joy? <laughs> and the thing is, that's really true. In the early years of our community, when I would fall under the imbalance that comes from an interior sense of urgency, Robin had a metaphor that she would regularly share with me. 
It was a metaphor of the people of Israel just fresh out of slavery, crossing the wilderness on their way home with a sense of pressure to go and a sense of pressure to be there. And she would say, the army could do, move no faster than the children and the elders. And she would say, you can go hard, Doug, but you'll go alone. Or you can go at a pace that we can handle and we'll come along. And that's true. Passion, yes. Urgency, yes. But an equal truth is a pace that we can sustain. Don't settle for inertia or an inadequate religious narrative, no. Don't allow for complacency or for a Christianity that is not about the business of healing souls and healing the world. Yes, push forward. But no faster and no harder than we can actually go without being overtaken by exhaustion. And sometimes I push too hard, and I think I did that in August. Now I know from my own spiritual journey that we are like trees. We grow at a pace that we grow, no faster. Now pray God that we don't linger and pray God that we don't stagnate. There is an urgency about. But also pray God that there is no pressure to move faster than is healthy or is healing. In fact, going too hard and going too fast is kind of a cardinal sin for me personally because I was on the receiving end of that kind of religion and it burned me out and it cost me a decade of my life. So I know this stuff is true. So in August, we had two very difficult Sundays on restorative justice. You heard me say this, the spiritual journey produces healthy souls. Healthy souls take care of me and mine in a very good way, but healthy souls also develop overflow capacity so that we can care for the world too. To discern our place, our niche, our role in healing the world around us. And restorative justice is tailor-made for the Christian church, and restorative justice as a movement is tailor-made for us as a community. When harm is done, restoring and healing the harm done to the individual, to the relationship, to the community, as you heard during the announcement. So John Powell came from Campbell Law School's Restorative Justice Clinic, and he talked about the work that we're doing in Wake County Schools to intervene in the school, excuse me, the school-to-prison pipeline. You'll hear announcements about how to participate in that during the fall. But then at the end, he showed a brutal video a jaywalking infraction that escalated into a violent beating all caught on body camera and it was up there on the screen on a Sunday morning in church. And some had to leave the room because it was too painful and because it was too visceral. And then the very next week we spoke about restorative justice and sexual violation, repairing harm that's done to victims of sexual violation but also re-engaging the perpetrators of sexual violation. Can it be done? And can it be done in our community in this instance, in this way? Back to back. Racial brutality in our face at church. The wounds of sexual violation in our face at church. Now if our community represents our society, one in four women in the room have experienced sexual violation. One in six have experienced rape or attempted rape. And most of the women have experienced the indignity or the fear that comes from recurring sexual harassment. 
Come to church. Okay, we're going to deal with racial brutality. Come to church. Okay, we're going to deal with deep sexual wounds. And by the way, we're still grappling with our nation's sin of racism. By the way, we're still grappling with social polarization. By the way, we're still working on interpersonal conflicts. And by the way, we're still working on our own shadow sides, and it is a lot. And it is hard. And it is painful. And it can easily become immobilizing and overwhelming instead of motivating and inspiring. And yeah, my sense of urgency does that. And I'm sorry. Now again, there is reason for urgency and there is reason for passion, but not at the expense of going together. I am sorry that I made some feel excluded or less spiritual or less capable. I'm sorry for communicating the subtext that if you can't handle the pace, you don't belong here because nothing could be further from the truth. When I step out of, outside of my urgency, and by the way, thank you to the many who helped me do that by talking with me. When I step out of, out of my sense of urgency, that's a terrible, awful message to send. I would never want to exclude those who need time, especially because for so much of my life, I was in that position of needing that time and that pace. I needed a pace I could walk. Now it is true that religion does play an essential role in society. And it is true that American religion is woefully unprepared for that role. And it is true that the future is coming and we do need to find our way again. And that does mean we have to grapple with our nation's sin of racism. That does mean we're going to have to grapple with this horrible, these numbers that tell us about the rate at which sexual violation happens in our society. And we're going to keep pressing forward but we're going to do so with a pace that gives us time to heal, time to rest when we need to rest, space. Our community is really making great progress in so many areas. And we've come a long way, and we can celebrate that. And yes, there is further to go. We're not going to avoid hard issues, but we will make sure that we can go together. We'll make sure that we can adjust the pace as needed, and create the space and permission to rest and to heal. But to help, I could really use feedback. Camera, take a picture. I know from experience that the spiritual journey is not a one-size-fits-all. Sometimes we need to run, and sometimes we need to sit. Sometimes we are ready for the hard thing, and sometimes we are not ready. And when I don't honor a healthy pace of life, when I didn't do that in my own life, it cost me the decade, and I certainly don't want to perpetuate that in our own community's life. Now, I have seen lots of ways that it can work, that we can all be in a place that's great for us and still be part of a connected community. We don't have to run at a pace where we all run in lockstep. That's not how this even works. This isn't a race. We're not crossing the wilderness. We can move and be connected in a way where we can push forward when we're ready to push forward and we can rest when we're ready to rest. But we need to create that structure with intentionality. And that's what I want us to do. So feedback will help. Uh, 
feedback will help create spaces, create pacing. So please help me out. Holy Spirit, healthy souls and a healthy world. And we will find our way forward at a pace that we can sustain. Amen.